Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading for the sermon comes from the book of Judges, chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. Then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moriah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hands has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him, set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others Go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he set, sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it, so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, and I and all the men 
who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshita towards Zerura, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, and Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Nephtali, and from Asher, and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah, also, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. And they captured the waters as far as Bethbara, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Good morning, Grace Church. I think as many of you know, this earlier this year, the elders of this church brought forth Mark Mahowski and Matt Nelson as elder candidates. And I just want to remind you of one of the uh, qualifications uh, the Bible gives. This is from Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may not be so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. For the past year Mark has been serving in very public capacities uh, in ways intentionally uh, to display his qualifications and his ability to shepherd well the flock of God. This morning uh, the elders have asked Mark to preach and so this is his opportunity to do that, for him to show that he is holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught and to show that he is able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to teach. So please listen. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, John. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word together. Pray that um, the words uh, in the book of Judges, that uh, we would have open hearts this morning to learn uh, what you have shown in your word, that we would be sensitive to the moving of your Holy Spirit, uh, and that we would leave here today um, ready and willing to obey you in whatever you ask of us. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If someone asked you what the theme of the Bible is, how would you answer this question in a sentence or so? The Bible has a, has a theme that permeates through its entirety. Um, if I was to answer this question, I would answer that the Bible is about the insignificance of man for God's glory and that the love of God for his people is greater than any of us can ever imagine. In the book of Judges, we see time and again God's people sinning against him. Is there always genuine repentance from Israel before God grants salvation? I would pose to you that no, there's quite often not genuine repentance from the children of Israel. There is simply a crying out to God to save them. It's like a child who has gone down a path that you've warned them about, uh, walking too close to a, a hole, they fall in, and they cry out to you, the parents, save me. Uh, my son Malachi comes to mind quite readily when I think, think of this. I'm sure maybe, parents, you have one child that maybe you could think of even more on this one. Um, but there's this, it's not a, it, it's not a, hey, dad, I was wrong. Pull me out of this hole. It's just a, you know, get me out of this hole, you know, fix the situation for me. It's, it didn't come from a necessarily a repentant heart. Um, and is, is it, it's not repentance that drives the child to cry and ask for help. It's simply despair in their situation that they simply realize that they have no hope of saving themselves from. In Judges chapter 3, verse 9, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 3, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we, see, we simply see the people, they just cry out to God. The Hebrew verb, I'm not completely sure how to say it, za'ak, used here, means to cry out in deep distress or because of some unbearable circumstance. Occasionally, it'll mean a, a cry of anguish directed to no one in particular. When the verb zak is used elsewhere to actually mean repentance, it is always explicitly expressed by some additional clause or second verb, such as in Judges chapter 10, verse 10. Flip there real quick. Judges 10.10, 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Um, and then the second clause is then followed in verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So uh, why is this distinction important for us to see? What is the author's intent for us, the reader, to see? Now, I wrote this sentence before I heard John preach last week, so just, <laughs> but it sounds pretty similar, so, all right. I did not plagiarize this, so, all right. You know what? God loves his people, and he grows impatient over their cries of misery. 
He sends a deliverer not necessarily because genuine repentance has happened, but because he loves his children and he takes care of them. Just as you love your children and they cannot do, do anything to you to keep you from loving them and taking them back into your arms, so too our Heavenly Father loves his people like this. And even greater than you and I can ever imagine is God's love for us, his people. Do we as believers fail to rightly see this truth in Judges? Do we often view the Old Testament, and specifically the book of Judges, as a collection of stories of Christian superheroes who God has appointed to swoop in and save the day for the nation of Israel? Do not yawn and have a ho-hum, wow, that's a pretty cool approach to God's word. But be amazed, be humbled by his glory and love for his children, Israel, and for you and for me. Praise him and worship him for who he is, our great and mighty salvation. Uh, just some background on Judges and then leading into our text. The name of the book of Judges comes from the 12 Israelite leaders who God used to deliver his people from oppression throughout the book. The author of Judges is not known, but there are some clues that the author lived during the early part of David's reign. Chapter 20, verse 18, affirms God's final choice of the tribe of Judah, David and his sons, and not the tribe of Benjamin, Saul and his sons, to rule over Israel. The author wrote with a perspective that a king would establish law and order, uh, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did it as he pleased. That is uh, chapter 21, verse 25. Also, a clue to the time the author wrote that it was in the early part of David's reign is that they mentioned that the Jebusites controlling the city of Jerusalem to this day. And we know that David captured the city, and he made it his capital in 1000 BC. And the Jebusites did not inhabit the city after that time. Judges fits into the story of the Bible after Joshua has led Israel into Canaan and passed away and before Samuel, the last judge, arrives on the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Judges is broken into three parts. The failure of the second generation is chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 6. The salvation of a merciful and gracious God is chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 16, verse 31. And then the confusion of a depraved people is chapters 17 through 21. In the first part, Israel fails at the task of completely possessing the land. You might ask, is this because they lost their resolve when their leader Joshua died? It shouldn't have been the case, because after the death of Joshua, the tribes of Judah and Simeon are given 10,000 men of the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hand by Almighty God. There's not even a mention of a leader for those, those tribes. It just says that the tribes of Judah and Simeon, God gave him to their hand. Again, the need for the quote-unquote Christian superhero, Joshua, it wasn't there. Um, when the tribes acted in unity, God granted success to them. In verse 22, God gives success to Ephraim and Manasseh. This is in chapter 1. There is also then in Judges 1, 27 through 36, if you read that, there's stated failure. 
This failure doesn't lead to immediate issues, but eventually apostasy came, which then ultimately brought judgment from the Lord. So it ta- in verses 27 through 36 of chapter 1, it talks about that they failed to drive out the, the, the peoples in the land of Canaan. The story of Gideon falls into the second part of Judges. God chooses to use those who man would not look at as the ultimate warrior so that there could be little doubt as to who the deliverance came from. Even when grace was least deserved, God provides and cares for a stubborn and stiff-necked people. In the beginning of Judges 6, we see an all-too-familiar start to a chapter. And the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. It's in verse 1. Verse 5 describes the Midianites as coming like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. Verse 6 describes Israel as being brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Verse 11 is the section where we meet Gideon. An angel of the Lord comes to him as he is beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So if you're thinking of a Christian superhero, you know, would that be the guy hiding in the winepress, beating out wheat? Probably not. You know, um, the angel tells Gideon that the Lord was, is with him, thou mighty man of valor. If you're, if you're the guy hiding in the wine press and you just you hear a voice say that to you, what's going through your mind? You know, the Lord responds, or excuse me, uh, Gideon responds with questioning about if the Lord is with us. Why has He given us into the hand of Midian? The Lord responds and tells him to go in this might of yours and save Israel. Do I not send you? Gideon responds. My clan is the weakest in this in the my tribe, and I'm the weakest in my father's house. How in the world can I save Israel? The Lord responds with a pretty simple but profound answer. I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon prepares food as a present. Fire comes and consumes the food upon the rock where it was placed. The Lord tells him to go and tear down his father's altar of Baal and then offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Gideon does it at night because he is fearful of the people and what they may do to him. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sent out messengers for men to follow him. The end of chapter 6 is Gideon asking God for a sign that he would indeed save Israel by my hand with the sign of the fleece being wet and the ground being dry. God does this, and the next night Gideon asks the Lord to make the fleece dry and the ground wet, and the Lord answers again and does, does what he asks. To go back to the superhero thoughts, I think we sometimes miss the point of who these people were that God used to provide deliverance for his people. The Sunday school lesson titles of Moses parts the Red Sea, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Samson slays the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, David slays Goliath. I could go on and on. Who parted the Red Sea? Who defeated the walls of Jericho? Who gave Samson his strength? Who slew Goliath with a stone? All of these acts are an impossible occurrence in the normal course of events. An almighty, infinitely powerful God had to intervene and cause the outcome in each case. 
It was not the special skills that these men had. It was God simply using them to make his sovereign plan happen. Do not miss this when reading the Bible. Man is insignificant to the glory and work of God. Praise him, though, that he gives us the privilege to be used by him through simple obedience. Now turning to Judges 7. How do we get to 300 men? Verses 1 through 8 explain that to us. God tells Gideon, hey, Gideon, you have way too many men. Now, put yourself in Gideon's shoes. Like, you know the army you're facing. You've got 32,000 men. You, you're, you know, it's four to one odds. Uh, we know from Judges 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 10, they were facing 135, approximately 135,000 men. So four to one odds, you know, seems pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, Verse 2 of God giving, the people you have are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My mine own hand has saved me. God knows the arrogance of man's hearts. I think about myself being as one of those, just not even getting, just as one of the 32,000 men. And I, I'd like to think about myself as not being too arrogant as to see that God grants the victory and not our skills as warriors. But the more I think about it, I could see how my arrogance or having my ego built up by accomplishing a victory at great odds is more, is more than plausible, but is most likely how I would respond. Think of it in the form of an athletic competition, hockey. There's five players on, on the ice at one time, but we're going to go four to one odds, so you're going to play 20 people, five against 20. My four teammates and I are victorious against the 20 other skaters because our conditioning is superior. We've been coached better. We're just all in all just more athletic than the other team, even though their numbers should have overwhelmed us. What's the problem here? It's all focused on us and our skill. Just as in this illustration, God knew that if he delivered Israel with the 32,000 men, their response would be similar as that illustration, that it was their ability as warriors to overcome those odds than it was God granting the victory. Can you see yourself being like Israel? Am I like Israel? The odds of me figuring out a given problem at times look pretty tough. There's a point where I may pray and ask the Lord for help, but when I'm given success in solving said problem, is my first response to rejoice and praise God out of humility that he granted me success in the trial that I am currently under? But again, is my ego lifted up that my ability to solve a problem is so great that there's nothing I can't conquer? Are we like Israel? Does the chance of success have to appear completely insurmountable for us to fully declare that victory came from the Lord? I pray that I would be more humble. I pray that we would be a more humble people. Verse 3 gives the nuts and bolts of how the men are reduced. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. 
and 22,000 men return home, leaving 10,000 men. And you think out of that 32,000 men, like whoever has fear and trembling, so were there only 22,000 honest ones? No, I don't know. <laughs> Seems to me like if I was one of those 30, I would be pretty pretty afraid. So yeah, just something I was thinking about. But Leaving 10,000 men. Some commentators talk about that, this sending away of those who are fearful and trembling followed the Israelites' laws of warfare laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 5 through 9, especially in verse 8, that if there was any man who was fearful and faint-hearted, send him away, lest he make his fellow soldiers' hearts melt away as well. So some thought that God didn't want cowards going into this battle, so send away all the, the men who are afraid. Um, that they, God was ensuring that the men were well ready to fight and were ready to care for one another. I believe that would be adding something to the text that isn't necessarily there. And um, most other commentators I read are in agreement that this just this was just happened to be the system God used to reduce the number of men. He was he was not trying to put together this company of quote unquote special forces. That would seem to, if he was trying to uh, put together a company of special forces, that would seem to fly in the face of him keeping Israel from boasting in their own strength for what he knew was a coming victory. Verses 4 through 8, God once again comes to Gideon. Once again, he instructs him, Gideon, hey, you have way too many men for Israel to not boast in their own strength over in a victory over the Midianites. He has the men drink from the water that they were near, and those who lapped his dogs were to be set apart, and likewise those who knelt and brought the water to their mouths were, with their hands were to be set apart. Again, uh, you know, there's maybe some thoughts from commentators that God only wanted alert men to go to battle with, and that's why he kept only those who were vigilant and drinking by kneeling and bringing the water to their mouths. Again, this seems to be adding something to the text that is simply not there, and would again seem to contradict his desire to have a force that could in any way rejoice and boast in their own strength. God was not trying to create the army of the 300 Spartans. This was simply the system God used to get the this was simply the system God used to get to the 300 men Gideon would go to battle with. Verses 9 through 15 is we see Gideon is given a final encouragement before the battle. Again, God comes to Gideon and instructs him, get yourself down into the camp of the Midianites, because he, he, God, was going to give the Midianites into his hands. He's instructed, hey, take your servant Pura down with you, if you're afraid to go on your own. And the Lord told him that his hands would be strengthened after going down to go to battle against the Midianites. I think this is a pretty cool moment, should be a pretty encouraging moment for us. It displays God's knowledge and his shepherding of his servant Gideon. He knew Gideon. I mean, we, we've seen Gideon needed signs to be encouraged to do this. Gideon didn't ask for a sign this time, but God, in his mercy to Gideon, he gives him one final, hey, I'm here with you. You can do this. To this point, Gideon had been given a multitude of signs, the consumption of the food he brought to the angel of the Lord by fire from heaven, protection from the townspeople after he destroyed the altar to Baal, 
and the instances of the fleece being wet and dry. God knew Gideon's heart, and he chose to grant Gideon one last sign of encouragement before he led his men into battle. We have an incredibly loving God who knows and loves us and gives us the encouragement to do what he asks of us. Have you ever thought, I can't do that? I can't do what, it, what God is asking of me? You are correct. You, in and of yourself, cannot do it. But if you are fully surrendered to the Lord, he will give you the strength to carry out what is being asked of you. Can you think of a moment in your life where you, you thought, I can't do that. I can't do what's being asked of me. I spent a summer as a counselor at a camp in North Carolina called the Wilds. And uh, one of the things you had to do was cheers in your cabin at dinner time in front of everybody. And you were supposed to write these cheers. And uh, so it was a, it was a, you had a, it was a guy counselor and then the, you had a sister counselor. So your cabin sat together and my sister counselor was all about it. Uh, I was not, and I can remember the first, um, the first time we were supposed to do it, like she's like the, there was a stoplight in the dining hall and when it would go green, like all the guy counselors were supposed to start it. So you were supposed to be the first one up and then lead your cabin in a cheer. And there was like 500 people in this dining hall. And I really did not have any desire to do that. And the my sister counselor Ashley, come on, Mark, come on, Mark. Oh. But uh, our camp director preached a message one night out of the book of Philippians about being carpet-minded and being willing to love your campers enough to do anything for them. And that really convicted me that as uncomfortable as it was for me to do cheers, I needed to love my campers enough to be willing to do cheers. Um, I still think cheers are foolish, but (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have been able to do that if God hadn't nudged me and I was able to stand up and do it. The story of Gideon and the 300 men is one of the greatest examples we have of God, of God, um, intervening and encouraging that you can do this. There was nothing special about Gideon or his 300 men. They were ordinary men who God was going to use to bring about a great victory over a pagan people to bring glory to his name. Gideon prepares his men for battle in in verses 16 through 18. Gideon has just been encouraged by the Lord, having gone into the camp of the Midianites and hearing the dream from one of the Midianites about the loaf of bread rolling down the hill and crushing the camp and the fear that that dream caused. He returns to the camp and he prepares his men for battle. The preparation is a very strange one, however. The men aren't armed with swords, spear, and shield. No, they are armed with a trumpet, a torch, and a pitcher. I'd like to pause here and just say a word about those 300 men. Now, the point of this story is not necessarily the faith of these 300 men. No, it it is indeed that God is greater than any insurmountable number of enemy forces. His greatness and glory knows no ending or boundaries. 
That being said, I believe we can marvel at the simple obedience of these 300 men. Put yourself in their shoes. They stayed when 22,000 men left. They stayed when another 9,700 left. They hadn't witnessed any of the signs that Gideon had seen, but they simply obeyed their Lord obeyed their Lord by obeying their commander. What would have been going through your mind, first off, as only 300 men going to battle, but worse still, your 300 men armed only with a trumpet, a torch, and a pitcher? What are you supposed to do with those? There is a principle here for us. It's simple obedience. Simple obedience gives us the opportunity to be a part of seeing God glorified in a great and mighty way. Gideon and the 300 men are given a complete victory in verses 19 through 25. Gideon and his men, they blow their trumpets, they break their pitchers, and they wave their torches, and they cry out for the sword of the Lord and Gideon. That statement, it shows who those men they're trusting in. They're trusting in their God and relying on him for victory. And their hearts were completely surrendered and obedient to their God and willing to to follow the commander that God had placed over them. You know, when I hear that, I don't know if anybody played football, but the opening kickoff on special teams, there's no bigger adrenaline rush than running full speed down the the field and hitting somebody as hard as you can. And I think that same adrenaline rush, I would think, would have gone through these men when they cry out the sword of the Lord and for Gideon, and they see what happens in the camp of the Midianites, that God brings about confusion in the camp of the Midianites. They are terrified, and they begin to slay one another, and God delivers a great victory for Gideon and his men and the nation of Israel. He has delivered them from being servants to a pagan people. You know, that in life, the the times where uh, you have the opportunity to share the gospel, Maybe you're incredibly nervous, incredibly scared to do it, but you are given the opportunity to share the gospel, and you act upon that opportunity, and you share. Whether that gospel is received or anything, you should get that same adrenaline rush because you had the opportunity to be obedient to God, and you you went ahead and you did it. That same excitement over simple obedience and having the opportunity, the privilege of being part of trying to advance the Lord's kingdom. We should get excited about that. God is, how does any of this apply for us today? God is greater than any people, situation, or problem in your lives. Deliverance may not come in the form that we expect or think it should, But God has promised to love and care for us, and God keeps his promises. His love for his people knows no bounds, and his greatness has no end. Man is not necessary for God's sovereign will to be accomplished. You can be the greatest farmer, gardener, or my profession of groundskeeper. You can do all the right things to grow healthy plants. But if God does not send the weather conducive to growing healthy plants, healthy plants just won't happen. Just because you've done everything correctly 
Remember this when sharing the gospel. Just as I can't grow healthy plants without God's help, you can't change people's hearts in and of yourself. It must be a work of God. But this should encourage us to be free, to be courageous and bold in planting the seed. For our Father in heaven has the granting of harvest handled. It's not ours to worry about. All our responsibility is to sow seed. God knows us. He knows our weaknesses, and he encourages us. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you need for encouragement, and if we simply obey and desire to serve him, he will be faithful to encourage us and give us the strength to do what he is asking of us. We serve an amazing, all-powerful, loving, and great God. Leave here today worshiping and praising him for who he is and what he has done for each and every one of us.